The James Beard award-winning book, Soul Food, gives the amazing backstory of one of the oldest and most interesting fusion cuisines in the United States. In this book, Adrian Miller created a representative soul food meal and explained what each food item is and how it got on the soul food plate. He also explains what it means for the culture. The book also contains 22 recipes, a mix of traditional, health conscious, and contemporary dishes. This is Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time by Adrian Miller. Welcome to the Loveland Libcast, the official podcast of the Loveland Public Library. Joining me today for this very, very exciting episode of the Loveland Libcast, and this is our Loveland Cookbook Group version of the Libcast. I, of course, have my co-host as always, Ashley Reger, recipe developer and freelance writer for Westward. Ashley, welcome back. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. And we are both very excited to introduce our guest, Adrian Miller, a culinary historian, lawyer, and public policy advisor. His books have twice won the James Beard Foundation Book Award for Reference and Scholarship, Soul Food in 2014, and Black Smoke in 2022. He is also the author of The President's Kitchen Cabinet, which was nominated for a 2018 NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work, Nonfiction. Adrian, thank you so much for joining the Loveland Libcast. Oh, yes. Great to be with you. Well, we are going to jump right into it, I think, because we've got questions for you. And then, of course, we'll introduce February's recipe kit. I wanted to start, Adrian. What was your journey to becoming an author? It was very unorthodox. So when people ask me, you know, why, how did you get into writing? The short answer is unemployment. <laughs> um, so the longer answer is I was working in the Clinton White House and at that time in my life, I was thinking politics was going to be my vocation. After my time in the Clinton White House working on racial reconciliation issues, when that ended, I was trying to get back to Denver to start my political career, but the job market was really slow. I was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even going to tell you what shows. And in the depth <laughs> of my depravity, I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to a local bookstore and I I'd like, always liked to cook and I was browsing the cookbook section and there was this book on the history of Southern food and I had never read a food history prior to that point. It's called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History, written by John Edgerton. And in that book, he wrote that the tribute to black achievement in American cookery had yet to be written. And so he wrote those words in the late 80s. I'm picking the book up in the early 2000s. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I reached out to him and I asked him, hey, you wrote this a while ago, this one sentence. Do you still think this is true? And he said, you know, for the most part, nobody's taken on the full story. And there's always room for another voice. So why not yours? So with no qualifications at all, except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking it some, that's what started my journey. So I did make it back to Denver. I did get a job in politics. As you know, that, that still was my focus. So this was just kind of like a hobby slash side hustle. And um, I just started grabbing everything I could on African-American food traditions. And so I'm lucky that I live in a place like Colorado that has world-class libraries. And these libraries have not only great resources within the walls of the library, but they often have ways that you have a library card, you can get access to electronic mm -hmm. databases. 
and also interlibrary loan system, which allows you to just get all kinds of things. So I just really lived in the library, did a lot of research, and the main corpus for my books was I read 3,500 oral histories of enslaved people, and I indexed every reference for food that I found. I read about 500 cookbooks, half of them offered by African-Americans, because I wanted to put African-American food traditions in a culinary context. I read thousands of newspaper articles, magazine articles, and books, thanks to those electronic databases and um, interlibrary loan system that my library had. And then because I cared so much about my research, I decided to eat my way through the country. <laughs> so went to 150 soul food restaurants, 35 cities and 15 states. So and, and, and just talked to a ton of people about what they thought soul food is, African-American food traditions. What are they? How do they play out in different regions? You know, all of that kind of stuff. So that's how I got started, man. So really, it was just <laughs> unemployment and curiosity. That is awesome. And I promise I didn't know that there would be a plug for libraries in that, but <laughs> that's so cool to hear. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, because, you know, I'm a broke brother, man. So, you know, if I didn't have libraries with resources, I wouldn't have been able to pull this off. You know, I, I couldn't buy all of those books. Yeah. Travel to other places to find out this stuff. So, you know, the, the library is a window to the world. And so, again, I'm just glad I, I live in a place that funds libraries and, and, and these libraries have resources. So yeah. I'm, I'm always giving love to libraries when I can. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Totally. I really love that you mentioned all of the stories that you went back and read from people in that time period, because that's as I've been reading this book, I've really, really been appreciating that and valuing being able to read those actual stories. It just brings it much more into real life than I think a lot of other soul food cookbooks that I've read. Oh, no, thanks. Yeah, it was really important to me in several ways to have people to the extent possible speak in their own voice and tell those stories because it, it brings slavery to life. Because for the most part, we just get a sense that slavery is bad and that, you know, there was some horrible, some bad stuff happened. But we have no real sense of how these people lived their lives and, and just really how brutally sadistic slavery was. I mean, slaveholders tried to control the food that people ate and kept them half alive, just and just really only alive to extract as much work as possible. There's all that pain and stuff in those words, but then you hear about joy, beauty, love, family, all of these other things that make people human. So you, you see how indomitable the spirit was of these enslaved people, even under the most horrific circumstances. So I wanted to bring that to life. And to me, like food was a good way to get people to connect to that. Because a lot of times people don't want to hear about it, don't want to even know about it. But we all eat and food is very relatable. And so that created, I think, a good entree point to get people to see these things and maybe even think more deeply about them. So going off of that, how has food allowed you to discuss and examine the African-American experiences? And you kind of talked earlier about what inspired you to write this, but has your passion changed over the time that you wrote this book and in the decades since? No, I think the passion has remained the same. I think the thing that really excites me is the ability to tell stories that people haven't heard or maybe retell stories that have been forgotten. Because when I first started this, I, I reached out to a lot of food writers, even though that author had told me nobody's done it. You know, I just wanted to verify that. So I reached out to a number of African-American food writers. And I mean, each one of them told me, look, good luck. You're not going to find that much. This country is racist and these people have never been celebrated. So, you know, cobble together the best book that you can. But, you know, most of the people I talked to were mature 
and they didn't know about this newfangled thing called the internet. Okay. And so when I got on there, I mean, I quickly had enough material to write five books. So I went from a place of dearth to just abundance. And so I was just like, man, how am I going to tell this story? I just love going through old newspapers, sitting in archives and stacks and just finding these stories and these amazing people. And so food was a great way to do this because it creates a frame that's relatable. We all eat. And I find that people, that we're in a foodie moment. So I think that helps too. And so people are more curious about the backstory of food now than I think they may have been in previous generations. And so we don't have people that just think about food as fuel. They think about the historical and social context of food and, and these dishes and things. So I think that all of that comes together to create a unique opportunity for me to share stories and reach people that probably don't think about these things, didn't want to think about these things. You touched on this some with, you know, we're being in Denver and state of Colorado where there is support for libraries and that was allowing you to do some of this research. But did being in Colorado have any other effect on how you approach writing about food in African-American history? Well, for a lot of people, it loses me street cred on the subject. And uh, <laughs> so I have to win people back. So I tell them my parents are from the South. My mom's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And my dad's from Helena, Arkansas. And even then, some people are like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, having those, it's great migration stories. So they leave the South separately and, and meet in Denver but uh, made a concerted effort to raise me in those, uh, steeped in those traditions, which I'm very grateful for. The fact that we had a black aesthetic in my household and that we went to a black church every week. And that was a big part of my childhood, even in the lily white suburbs of Denver, that was important to have that cultural reference. So I'm great. I'm just very grateful for that. So I, I was familiar with the culture, but not directly in it, right? Because I didn't live in the South. And I think you know, it's a mixed bag because being in the South, there's just all this other stuff I would have known about that I didn't, wouldn't have had to research because I, I just would have been in the milieu, as they say. But I think being outside the South gave me a critical distance. Having been to the South several times and having lived out of the South, but being around a lot of Southerners, recent and migrants from a long time ago, I have a lot of data points, I think, that give me an interesting way to look at this stuff. So I'm not mm -hmm. blindly provincial but I can, I can just kind of step out and say, okay, well, you know, you may think this, but this is how people outside the South think this. Because a lot of times people want to challenge what I've concluded. And what I find is that they are coming from a place where they are used to a certain thing in their area and they think that's how it plays out everywhere. And I tell them, look, you don't really see uh, back then, you don't really see okra on restaurant menus outside the South. Mm -hmm. It's all over the place in the South, but you know, once you get, once you leave the South, you don't really see it that much. Mm -hmm. um, now fried okra is bar food. So you see it everywhere. But <laughs> so those kind of things, yeah. I think in um, the book in my perspective. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking as you're telling this story about the introduction to the book where you talk a little bit about how soul food has in maybe the most recent 50 years or maybe a little bit more, has gained a reputation of being looked down upon, unpopular, unhealthy, and how that relates to being a ubiquitous uh, or somewhat ubiquitous culinary tradition in the South, and then you being in Denver and having that outside view on that. So how has that changed over the last 10 years since you wrote this book? Do you still think that soul food has this reputation of being looked down upon, or do you think that it has changed? 
Um, I think its reputation is getting better only because I think you have more and more fine dining chefs and other chefs who aren't in working class restaurants embracing soul food and not running away from it. When I first wrote my book, I mean, so many fine dining chefs were just like, don't, African-Americans, don't associate me with soul food. And I understand why they were saying that. It saddened me, but I understood why they were saying that. And so, you know, my comeback, whenever I heard that, I, I would say, well, look, first of all, I think soul food is much more complicated than what you think it is. Because it, the reason why they were saying that is because of the view that soul food is slave food and soul food is inherently bad for you and needs a warning label because it's going to kill you. But it's really more that slave food part, the idea that, that soul food is the white people's garbage, right? It's the stuff that slaveholders didn't want to eat. And I understand where that narrative comes from, but it's not, it, soul food itself is much more complex. So I say that to them. And then the other thing I would say, okay, these high-class French chefs that you probably know about, maybe want to emulate, do you hear any of them saying, don't associate me with rustic country cooking from France? No, they never mm -hmm. say that. They say, I'm versed in it. I know how to cook it, but I cook this. And that's, mm -hmm. that's all I want, right? I want people just to honor their heritage, be conversant in these other things. But then if you want to be a, the best sushi cook in the world as an African-American, then go for it. Mm -hmm. But don't, to me, just don't denigrate the food of your own tradition. That's another reason that I was inspired to write this book, because I saw so many other cultures celebrating their, for lack of a better word, kind of vernacular cuisine, right? Poverty cuisine. And I was just like, why not us? Plus, ours is delicious. And so many people copy it around the world. I mean, how many people do you hear say their culture blank soul food, mm -hmm. Japanese soul food, Russian soul food, whatever it is? Because they know it's a great marketing term and they know that it captures a beautiful essence of a cuisine and a people. So I think that's something we should celebrate and embrace. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And speaking of soul food, is there a recipe or two in soul food that you really hope people try out when they pick it up or check it out at the library? Yeah, so soul food is, is not a cookbook um, and that trips people up because they're, they're not used to hearing about the history of the cuisine. They're usually here, you know, used to reading, cooking out of these magnificent cookbooks. So it has 22 recipes. There's a couple that I love. I'm often asked, what is your favorite soul food thing to cook? And for me, it's greens. And my recipe, which my mother made, is I mix mustard and turnip greens. You can cook them with smoked ham hocks, but I like to cook them with smoked turkey. Um, I find I just get a lot, of, lot better flavor with the smoked turkey here in Colorado. Something's up with the pigs. Because when I go to the pigs, <laughs> I use the pork in the South, much better flavor. So anyway... And then some onion, some garlic, and some red pepper. But greens are very good for you. You don't have to have the meat. And it's a, it's a connection to West Africa. Greens are very important in West African cuisine. So it, it shows a cultural continuity. And it, it's just delicious. And I can't tell you how many times people have my greens. They're like, you know, I, just, I never really liked greens, but I've just never had them, I guess, prepared well. There's also a Creole catfish, broiled catfish recipe. So instead of fried catfish, which I love, it's a healthier riff on that where essentially you rub either whole fish or filet in olive oil and put on your favorite Creole seasoning and then broil it for about seven minutes. People go nuts for that recipe. And um, it offers a life lesson because that recipe comes from an ex-girlfriend. And so I tell people as a pro tip, you know, if you're in a relationship with someone who's a good cook, do what you can to stay with that person. 
But if you notice that things are starting to get rocky, I can tell you from personal experience, it's a lot easier to get recipes before you break up. (laughs) That's just a pro tip. And then there's a cornbread recipe called Mrs. Utsi's No Fail Cornbread. It's a, um, from one of my church mothers, uh, Minnie Utsi, who's no longer with us. Uh, But when you go to a church, especially a black church, you, you have several surrogate mothers in addition to your own. And she was one of them. And this cornbread recipe is just very solid. It's um, a slightly sweet cornbread, which is what you find in African-American traditions. Now, there are a lot of white Southerners that would say, now, if you put sugar in cornbread, it becomes cake. So that shows you one of the dividing lines. But yeah, I think if you had a meal with that creole boil catfish, the greens and the cornbread, that's a pretty good meal. And then, I'm sorry, there's one more that I love, and it's, it's called Hibiscus Aid. It's a drink from the Virgin Islands. It's made with the flower petals of the hibiscus flower water, ginger, any kind of sweetener you want, and lime. I think it's the precursor to Kool-Aid, red Kool-Aid. And remember, red is a color and a flavor. Uh, So I would add that as the drink. (laughs) All right. That's a whole meal then. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds sounds great. (laughs) So our February cookbook for the Loveland Cookbook Group is Soul Food by Adrian Miller. And how did this come across your radar, Ashley? And it sounds like you had heard Adrian speak before. So was that part of it? Yeah. So I was lucky enough to see Adrian do a video talk at an Eat Denver event last year. And that really stuck with me. So when we were considering what books to bring into our 2023 lineup, Soul Food was definitely on my mind. And because we wanted to dive a little bit more into Black History Month, I loved Soul Food as an option for a more educational and information-dense book because we have looked at books like Jubilee by Tony Tipton Martin before. This is more of a history and a chronicle of looking at food through time. So that's why we chose it. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that, Adrian, that it has 22 recipes in it. Is there anything else you'd like readers, if they aren't familiar with it or if they haven't read it, anything you'd like them to know before they decide to read it? And I also want to know if there are any reactions or responses, you mentioned some of these too, that folks have had to this book that have surprised you. So I think one thing to know is that it is organized by taking a representative soul food meal. And then in each chapter, I write about that particular food item and I explain what it is how it gets on the soul food plate and what it means for the culture. And then there's usually, most, most chapters have either have a, a traditional recipe, a health conscious one, and then a fancy one in case they want to show off as a cook. So that's, the, that's just kind of the organization of it. And I think well, the reactions have been all over the place. I was unsure how people outside the black community would react to it, but it's been enthusiastic and people have really thanked me for writing in a way that's accessible it's definitely scholarly and you'll be blown away with the bibliography and the end notes, but it's written in an accessible way. And people say, oh, I just so, I'm just so grateful for that. I just feel like I'm in a room sitting down at a table with you and we're just talking about that. And that's certainly the vibe that I wanted to strike. You know, I've actually gotten more kind of negative is the wrong word, but just questioning reactions from people in the black community because they didn't know the history. And so some of the, the notions of what soul food is die hard. And so even when presented with facts and stuff, some people just still don't want to let go of these attitudes that they have about soul food. So that was interesting to me. I didn't expect it. But, you know, at the same time, a ton of African-Americans have said, thank you for writing this love letter 
to our food and doing it in, in such a way that has so much integrity and is so interesting. And the last thing I'll say is I do think of my works as an appetizer. As an author, especially when you're doing a history, depending on the resources you have, you know, you're writing the best book that you can given the information that you have. And so my hope is that somebody will come along and say, okay, I'm building on Adrian's work. Um, this is all the stuff that I think it was right, but here's something that I think he got wrong for this reason. And, you know, I'm okay with that as long as the research is sound and there's new evidence that arises and people say, oh, okay, this is, you know, this is where fried chicken is from, or this is why this happened. I feel like I am just setting a table and I do hope that people will connect through the book and be inspired to cook, be inspired to go support African-Americans who are in the food business and think about how these foods are maybe similar to foods of their own culture. Because, you know, that hibiscus drink that I described, I mean, it's called bisop in West Africa. That's the where it comes from. It has got other names in West Africa. But it's, it's also agua de Jamaica in um, Mexican restaurants. And that means Jamaica water, right? Or Florida Jamaica, Jamaica flower. Mm -hmm. So it just shows the migration of this hibiscus plant from West Africa that comes across the Atlantic during the slave trade, takes root in the Caribbean. In Jamaica, it's called sorrel, and then starts spreading throughout the Caribbean and then makes its way to Latin America. And so I think a lot of people in Latin America here in the US are drinking this African-inspired drink and they have no idea. You know, if they read my book, maybe they can make those connections and say, <laughs> tell, you know, tell their buddies, hey, do you know where that comes from? That made me think of, I love the section on mac and cheese because I think it shows your voice as an author. It's funny, but then it gets into that history where you're just like, this is so complicated, like how chefs shared recipes, it goes over to Europe, comes back to America. Like that, it's just so cool to learn that stuff. It's very mm -hmm. fun to track that and very interesting. As you had mentioned before, uh, Mrs. Utzi's Never Fail Cornbread is our recipe kit for the month of February. So we're going to have recipe kits for people to grab. Of course, those are free. They come out the second Thursday of the month. This one will have coarse yellow cornmeal and vegetable shortening in it. So you folks can come in and grab that and learn that recipe and make it for themselves. Do you have any tips or suggestions or you gave us a little information about Mrs. Utzi, but anything if that people might want to know or be aware of before they go in and try this out? The critical thing is a lot of people vary the oil that's used. So they don't use the shortening. And when I say shortening, it's the, it's the um, vegetable fat that solidifies when it's at room temperature. So all I want to say is that if you exchange that for anything else like coconut oil or whatever, the texture is going to be different. So you're going to probably have a more crumbly cornbread because it just cracks me up. People will come back and be like, hey, your recipe doesn't work. And I said, oh, OK, so what did you do? And then they tell me all the substitutions like, well, you didn't make the recipe. <laughs> so I just changed um, every ingredient and then it didn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just just understand it's probably going to be more crumbly if you do that. And then the other thing is you want the batter to be almost like pancake batter, maybe a little bit thicker than pancake batter. So mm -hmm. if it's too thick, you can always adjust and add more milk. Cause what I'm finding is depending on the cornmeal used in other things like that, it just absorbs more. So sometimes the batter's thicker than it should be or runnier. So you, you may have to adjust, but I, I would just say that you want, you're looking for the consistency of pancake batter. Now I'm assuming that people have made homemade pancakes. So that may not be helpful to a lot of people. 
Uh, you know, the other thing I would say is I typically make this recipe as muffins rather than as a a skillet cornbread. When I when I do make it for large groups, sometimes I do it in a cast iron skillet and make sure that's greased. Sometimes I do it in a you know one of those Purex baking things. But lately, I've been doing it as muffins because I think people just like their individual serving, and it, it does work really well as a muffin. I made the cornbread last week and we had it for dinner with some stew and it was it was really really good I loved having it for breakfast and I think next time I would love to make it as corn muffins because we only have two people in my house so I'd be able to freeze some and and store it away for breakfast in the future and you know future soups and stews and weeknights and I really really enjoyed that recipe it was it was very tasty cool And I wanted to ask you both, Ashley and Adrian, do you have any recommendations since we are going to release this uh, during Black History Month for additional African-American cookbook authors, food bloggers, or cooking, baking, social media personalities that people should check out? And we'll start with you, Adrian. Well, I think you already mentioned Tony Tipton Martin with her Jubilee, but the, the Jubilee cookbook, but people should also check out the Jemima Code, which is not a cookbook, but it's a chrono, it's kind of like a... African-American cookbook anthology where she points out several books and just kind of shows you the role of of black cooks, especially black women. And that another uh, interesting guy is a guy named Michael Twitty is kosher soul. So he does a lot of kind of the, he does a lot of work on the antebellum cuisine of African-Americans, but also the intersection of African-Americans and Jewish traditions. He is Jewish. So he actually, he just came out with a book called kosher soul. If you're kind of interested in that. Mm -hmm. There's another book by Tanya Holland called California Soul, which I think is really interesting, beautifully photographed. Uh, and that book just came out. So I don't know if your library has it yet, but people should check out that one. And then I, I would just encourage people, if they have Netflix, to check out High on the Hog, which is um, based on the work of Jessica B. Harris. She's kind of the pioneer for us who do this African-American culinary work, especially connecting what's going on in the Americas with, with what happened in Africa. And her book, it was the basis for that uh, four-part documentary on, on Netflix, which a lot of people love. And there's going to be a season two. So that's my short list. All right. Thank you. I didn't know there was going to be a season two, so I'm excited to watch that. You mentioned Michael Twitty, who I really love, and I've listened to podcasts from him, and he's just a very intelligent voice. And I will add one more to that list. It's an upcoming cookbook for our our group, uh, which is Homage by Chris Scott. And he talks about the intersections of Black cooking and Amish cooking because his family settled in Pennsylvania after the Emancipation Proclamation. So it was really cool to literally go from reading a chapter of Soul Food and then looking at the recipes in that book and making connections that way. And I come from a Mennonite background. So that was like a whole cool fireworks experience in my brain of making all these connections. Nice. Thank you both. Well, we always like to end the episode by giving any book recommendations or talking about what we've been reading lately or a favorite recently. It doesn't have to do anything with cooking or, or it can. Adrian, is there anything <laughs> that you recommend or anything you've been reading recently? Well, I'm a little bit boring because I'm already starting work on my next book. So a lot of my recent reading has actually been focused on that. But I think an an interesting book that you may want to pick up is there's a book called Black Food. And it's by 
Bryant Terry. Um, he edited it. Yeah, so it's edit. It's a collection of food essays, and it gives you a real kind of um, survey of African American food culture. So that's that's one recent book that I've read that I thought was really interesting. The other stuff has just been too very focused on my the theme for my next book. So, mm-hmm. all right. And how about you, Ashley? Mine is not connected to food or cooking at all. I just finished. The Raven Master by Christopher Scaife, and it's a nonfiction book about the caretaker of the ravens at the Tower of London, which is something I did not know anything about, but it was really fascinating and hearing the the lore and the history plus a little bit of animal stuff in it. I really thought it was a delight and and Christopher Scaife's voice is just very entertaining and easy to listen to. I listened to the audiobook and he he narrated it so. I Wait a really, minute. really enjoyed it. So you're saying that somebody takes care of those birds? Because those yeah. birds are huge. <laughs> they're, they're massive and they have whole personalities, which I learned about. And they say that if the ravens ever leave the Tower of London, that the kingdom will fall. It's really going to go down if the ravens leave. So they have to have someone on duty to take care of them. Man. Cool. well i hopefully by the time listeners hear this i'll be finished but currently i'm halfway through my first mirakami book i've been reading kafka on the shore and really enjoying it kind of got some magical realism and it's very weird and dreamlike and it's it's been very enjoyable i haven't read him before so it's my first one and i really enjoyed it i'm sure it's gonna stick the landing and stick with me when i finish reading it Adrian, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Leveland Libcast. We're so excited to celebrate soul food and celebrate Black History Month. And thank you for being a part of that. This has been such a fun conversation. And yeah, we can't thank you enough for being on the Leveland Libcast. Oh, no, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. So thank you. And mm-hmm. Ashley, as always, thank you so much for being a great co-host. We look forward to sharing our next and talking about our, our March cookbook when that comes around. So yeah. Thank you for being a part of this as always. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you all for listening to this episode of the Leveland Libcast, this cookbook group version. And we look forward to talking to you next time on the Leveland Libcast. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Loveland Libcast. If you'd like to contact us about the podcast, please reach out to Daniel at daniel.tate at cityofloveland.org. That's D-A-N-I-E-L dot T-A-T-E at cityofloveland.org. See you next time.